Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, if, if you want, you can stand the entire time, but it'd be awkward. Uh, so remember, I guess it's still a thing. Uh, do y'all have words for the year? No? Did we stop that? Like, this year I'm going to focus on this word. And Jesus, there you go, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's the safest one, but I remember like, um, it's a great answer here. It's always Jesus. Uh, but like, endurance would be one that we did last year or something like that. Remember that? Well, a couple years ago, uh, through our lives, uh, they were asking a question, and if, if you get to know me a little bit, I don't necessarily go along with what everyone else is doing intentionally, even though I might like it. I kind of want to be the, uh, the annoying guy that doesn't do it when everyone else is. And so uh, everyone was doing a word, and everyone's word was so beautiful. This was way before COVID, okay? And everyone's word was like, oh, neat. And I remember looking at Carrie and go, our word is ambiguous, and she looked at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, ambiguous. And it was part of the, where I was in life, and in that situation, uh, and where we were, our life was ambiguous to the very T of the definition of ambiguity. And for those of you who don't know Webster's, who haven't memorized it yet, ambiguity, the basic definition is, I don't know, right? It's uncertain. If, if that's that's the synonym for it. It means unclear. It, it means that you don't necessarily have a firm footing. Everything is kind of blah, and you don't know where to go. It's ambiguous. And, and so this was the world or, or our lives when what we were looking at. We didn't have a, necessarily a job. We didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know where we were going. Uh, Carrie's work was kind of in flux. My work was in flux. Uh, everything was ambiguous. Nothing seemed certain. Uh, and so as we look towards our lives today, many times ambiguous is what we come to, right? We don't know what's happening. Once we have something set, like we're going to do this, another thing happens, whether it's something with a virus or something in our, in our, in our neighborhood, something else happens, and then we get ambiguous all over again. Our words go out the door and, and we don't know what we're doing. And, and what I've noticed is that in these times of ambiguity um, that we've grown familiar with in these last few years, we have confusion, we have loss, we have lament, we have suffering, we have, uh, we've all at various times, because of this ambiguity we have, craved something that's concrete. We want something that sticks. And when we're honest, most of us have, have not founded that. And if we're completely honest, when we're in the throes of that ambiguity, we even begin to question the presence of God. When you start going through some of the trials and crisis, crises that we've had in these past few years, one of the first things that you question is, is God even there? It becomes mysterious, distanced, and a lot of times, and we've seen this in the past couple of years, we tend to walk away from our faith because nothing seems certain. Crisis has cloud our, our reality, and that's going to be a phrase that we're, we're going to focus on here in a little bit. Crisis has begun to uh, crowd our, our reality. They, crowd ev- they cloud out everything we know. Uh, that's why I kind of like the image here, because when it's cloudy, you don't know. It becomes ambiguous, and when we're full of crisis, we don't know anything. And so this reason is precisely why we're taking a look at the book of Job. And I said, shared with you last week, when I hear that we're going to go through Job, I go, oh no, that's a hard book. How many of you read Job? Did you like it? Oh, be honest. 
No. It's a hard book to read, right? Because it addresses the very nature of what happens to us when we go through crisis. It's hard to understand when we start studying Job. But given what our world is going through, given what a lot of us have gone through, even myself, it seems like a good thing to study, the book of Job. So these next few weeks, I believe there's eight. I I encourage you to come. I encourage you, those who are online, if you want to come join us here in person, great. If you're watching us later, I encourage us all to start reading the book of Job. But before we get into the series, there's some ground rules that we need to understand as, as we come to the book of Job. First, we need to understand the context of Job. Unfortunately, Job has been tossed around and misused and ignored and applied, so we're going to need some help uh, when it comes to understanding what's going on. And then today, I want to look at two questions that might help us along the journey of Job, and not only with Job, but in our lives as we confront crises that we deal with on a daily basis. Got it? Good? You with me? Okay, there's more coffee in the back if you're not. Okay, so when we look at Job, the first thing that we see is Job is very unique. Unlike many books in the Bible that we tend to study, uh, when, when, especially here, I like to go into the history and the context and who's writing what and who didn't write that and who said this. With Job, we can't play that game. And it makes me go, oh man, that's my favorite trick. With Job, we're dealing with something that's not necessarily present throughout the rest of Scripture. First of all, it takes place in the land of us. It's very simple, U-Z, it's us. Now, you can debate this, and scholars debate this all the time. No one has necessarily found the land of us. And so we're like, wait a second, it's not us. And it's not in Israel, which is interesting. Most of the books in the Bible have to do with something, either Egypt or Israel, surrounding areas. We can go pinpoint where it's at. They think they might have found the land of Uz or Uz, however you want to pronounce that U. Uh, but they think they might have found it, but we're not sure. That's the first thing that makes this book interesting. The second, th- there's two or three, but we'll only do a couple of them, is nobody in the book is Jewish, which you might go, yeah, big deal. In the Bible, it's something to take note of, because as you flip through your scriptures, you'll find most of the stuff has to deal with somebody who might have ties to the nation of Israel. In Job, it's not that. Job's from a different country altogether. Job's friends are not Jewish. There's one guy that comes in in like 36 who has a Jewish name, but he's from a Gentile city. And so he's not Jewish either. My son's names are Judah and Caleb. We're not Jewish. We're Irish, but they have Jewish names. That's kind of how it works. And so this is how it, this is the confusing part about Job. And then you can debate this, and scholars do, so we're just going to get this out there. No one really knows what time Job was written. A lot of people, the popular thing is it's written sometime before Abraham was, or it's written right after the flood, or anything like that. But a lot of more scholars are saying, no, 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 it's been written after the Israelites came back from exile in Babylon. And more and more are leaning that way, and more and more are leaning this way, and so we're stuck going like this. I don't know. When was it written? I don't know. Is it a real story? I don't know. Does it matter? No. Because you can look at all of these questions, and you can go, hey, whether or not we have the concrete details on this, the principles that we find in Job are very applicable to today. The point of all of this uh, is that the story of Job Uh, And the the interesting thing about this is it forces us to live in the ambiguous. We don't know the answers. 
but we can glean a lot from studying the story. And instead of being drawn to the answers, which our Western society absolutely loves, we look at the, the points and, and the, the, the how Job got through his suffering, and we can learn from that. And when we do that, what will happen is this, and I want to warn us all. We're not going to leave this room with buckets full of, when my car dies, I turn to Job 6 and I do this. Or when I lose my job, it's in Job 12. We don't leave with a lot of answers. Instead, we're going to leave with better questions. So I want to warn us, you don't approach Job looking for answers. You approach Job looking for principles that can guide you through a time of crisis. Questions are a good thing. Asking better questions is something that we need to get better at. And here's why I love this. Because we love answers. We love certainty. We love to know why and how and who, and especially for how long, and those are good. However, remember studying for finals? Remember you get that study guide, and and you would just, at least some of us who studied, uh, I didn't much, uh, but we would get through, and you would just study the answers, right? And as soon as the test is done, do you remember the answers? Neither do I. Ask me some questions about some history things, and I'll be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember that. Uh, Because we just study answers in order to get through the test. But the better teacher and the better way of learning is you study the questions that that enable you to seek the answers better for you. It's kind of like this, if this makes any sense. Uh, When you're learning to ride a bike, you have training wheels. Okay? And we rely on the training wheels to what? Keep us up. Some of us need training wheels still. Okay? But when you're riding on the bike and you have training wheels, what can't you do? Well, you can't lean into the turn because the training wheel stops you from leaning in too far. You can't really do the Tour de France in training wheels. If you did, you'd lose. I can't see us zooming down the hill on a mountain bike. Steve, you mountain bike. Any training wheels on the mountain bike course? No. Uh, and so, and other, so what I'm getting at is these questions, the answers that we're so focused on, Start to act like training wheels. What we need to do is get away from our need and our desire for answers and get to the real stuff and start live, being able to live and thrive in the ambiguous places that our lives bring. And so when we start the study of Job these next few weeks, you might walk away with answers, but most likely you'll walk away with some questions. And of the questions raised throughout the book, the first question that is brought up, even in the opening chapter of the book, is essentially this. Why do you follow God in the first place? Which is the root that guides us through the entire book. The question is at the core of the story. In the very beginning, and we're only going to be here for a minute, we're going to do something different with Job. In the very beginning, Satan comes in, is in the presence of God. It's one of those weird things, and everyone's like, what's he doing there? And we're like, I don't know. Okay, that's the first kind of question that we come to. He comes to God in Job chapter 1, verse 9. He starts talking to Job. It says that he's been roaming around earth, searching. And he comes back and, and, and he says, does Job, this guy named Job down there, does he fear God for nothing, Satan said to God. And he says back to God, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the works of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the entire land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything that he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. In other words, the accuser, which is what Satan's name means, uh, some people might call him the Satan or the accuser. We're just going to shorten it to Satan because it's less words, right? Satan comes and he says, look, 
everyone's great, everyone's following you, but Job only follows you because you give him good things. That's the only reason he's following you. So the question that he raises is, does he fear you? Does he follow you only for what he'll get out of it? So is it a selfish motivation in general that leads Job to follow you? Is that the only reason he follows you at all? Which is the same question to us that we need to start having. Do we follow God just so what, we'll, just so what we get from God? As if, if, we live, if we follow him, he'll bless us. He'll give us everything that we want, need, and desire. That's why we follow God. If that's the case, what happens when you don't get it? Which is where we sit. And so this is what happens. And at least to me, when crisis comes in, and this is what Satan's saying, give him some crises, perhaps he's not going to follow you. And here's what happens that Satan's getting at that we all can learn from. When it comes to the, is it crises or crises? Crises, okay, forgive me, I'm going to say it wrong for like eight weeks, okay? When it comes to our crises, what we usually do is we start to get away from our thought. Our, what usually happens is our thoughts of God are the first things that get altered. We don't really think about God in our everyday life, right? When crisis comes, the thoughts of God come and our questions are like, why is God doing this to me? We all have a theology, whether you call yourself a theologian or not. Theology just means how you think about God. And our trials and our crises, did it right, tend to sharpen how our thoughts and our approach towards God go. They tend to shape them. Our motivations for following God, our motivations for our quiet times, our motivations for our worship tend to be questioned when we're going through the dark times. This has happened in my life. I'm sure it's happened in yours. Once when I was just leaving college, uh, I, I landed a dream job, right? I was in San Diego, which you can't get much better than that. And, and in the morning, I was, I was a college pastor. In the morning, I would surf every day with a different group of guys. And we'd have a, a prayer meeting, and then we'd surf, and then we'd go to this local coffee shop there in San Diego, and then we'd have a little Bible study, and then we'd go to work, okay? Awesome. And what did I do Tuesday afternoons and Thursday afternoons? Same thing, but on a golf course, okay? It was awesome. And I looked at it as being my early 20s going, why would I ever want to do anything else? I surf every morning. I golf twice a week. I was getting pretty good. I knew the guy at the golf course that would let me on for free. So even better, I was golfing for free, surfing's free. And so you don't have to pay for waves yet. Uh, and so everything I had was, was great. And then I lost the job. And I start going, wait a second. And what's the first thing that I thought of? God, why are you doing this? Where are you in this? You just took away my dream. And I had to adjust the way I thought about my theology, the way I thought and the way I approached God. I can no longer think that, well, God just gives me whatever I want. And when he does, he's awesome. God's ideas were better than mine. I had to move home. I was 25 years old and moving back in with my parents. How's that going? That wasn't fun. Okay, I, I lost the job. I, had, I went back to school. Everything turned out great. Don't worry. But in that time, I had to adjust my theology. A few years later, when our house burned down in Southern California, I had to do the same thing. I needed to wrestle with my theology that sometimes bad things happen to people. And it's not like God said, smite thee with fire. No, a fire happened. 
and it was the where we live. It's a natural disaster. The fire swept through our neighborhood. It wasn't just my house that burnt down. It was our neighbor who was kind of ornery, who deserved it, right? We didn't deserve it. But sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes your house burns down. Sometimes your car breaks. Bad things happen to good people. Later, about six years ago, when dad died, I finally had to learn, although I firmly believe that God answers our prayers, that sometimes I don't get everything I prayed for. Sometimes the forces of the world and the forces of the fallen world that we'll, that we'll get to throughout this book is that sometimes those forces take over. So, you know, life ends at some point. And we all have to wrestle with that. We have to wrestle with loss. We have to wrestle with pain. And so one of the many, one of our crises and what we'll have, crises, what we have to do is how do we approach God in the middle of those things? Think of our world today. You have a virus. One of my friends is in the hospital because of this virus right now. You have job losses. You have people who can't find jobs. You have people who've been trying and trying and trying, even though there's help wanted, there's no jobs for them to get. And how we approach God is shaped a lot by our crises. Crises. Come on, Brad. One of the most difficult parts about this is it clouds our reality of God. And what we see with Job is it not only clouds our reality of God, is it clouds the reality of ourselves. So in the middle of our crises, when we're asking the hard questions, when we're starting to question reality, when everything is ambiguous, I want us to focus today on two things that we can know when we're going through those things. Two things. Okay, the first one. So let's go to Job. Okay, the first one we're going to look at is you can know something about God. Now, when we go to books of the Bible, usually we start in the first chapter. So if you're expecting to go to Job chapter one, verse one, I'm going to throw a curveball at you already. In your Bibles, go to chapter 42 of Job. We're going to begin at the end. Sometimes, like when you do a maze, it's best to start at the finish and work your way back to the front. Today we're going to start at the finish because there's some things that Job says in the very last chapter that should guide us as we go through the rest of the 41, okay? So we're going to go to chapter 42 because in the middle of pain, sickness, death, loss, confusion, and the ambiguity, Job comes back at the end of the book to what he does know, which is this. He can know that his God is good. All of that Job has gone through. He can come back to that God is good. And then he can know his limits. So in your Bibles, chapter 42, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3, and then we're going to flip down to 6. It's important to know Job's experiences and reactions are no different than ours. He has the same doubts, same thoughts, same questions. And so as we go through, Job's going to start asking some questions about God. You don't have to turn there. Hold your, hold your place in chapter 42. It'll be on the screens. So Job starts going through problems. And if you're familiar with it, he loses his family. He loses his house. He loses some of his friends. His wife starts to question him. He loses absolutely all that he had, all of his money. In Job 9, he starts to question God, a lot of the, along the lines of how we do. And he says this in, in chapter 9. Is it all the same? And he's talking to God. This is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. So he's saying this, that God does that. And so he's making a pretty good accusation against God. If you flip again, or it'll be on the screen, in Job 27, 2, he says this, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty has made my life bitter. 
So he's saying that God mocks us when we go through trials. He's questioning that God does this. He's also saying that God doesn't run the world according to justice. What these show us is that his crises are clouding his reality. Job's begins to think that God runs this world by means of retribution, which leads him to the brink of an awful conclusion that says this, maybe God is not good. Maybe God is not just. And also, ultimately, he's saying maybe God's just incompetent to run the world. Have you ever thought that? You don't have to admit it out loud. It's okay. I have. When you go through some stuff, these are the things that cross your mind. When we're honest, that's what we think about. We say things like this, we'll never recover from this, or I won't be the same, or God hates me, or God doesn't like me, or God doesn't love me. I've said them, you've said them. Our reality becomes obscured when we say this. So Job vents to God. He says this probably for about three or four chapters. We're going to get to it. He vents to God out, and notice this, God never condemns him for venting. It's okay to vent to God in the middle of your crises. God, God can handle it. He's, he's not going to be, he's not going to fall apart because we say a harsh word for him. And notice, Job lives through the venting part, so God doesn't smite him with more stuff. He, he gets through it, as we'll see. Job vents from God. He airs his grievances if it's festivus. He says, this is my problem with you. And he goes with it. However, if we accuse God, we need to be, or if we vent to God, we need to be able to listen to his response. So in chapter 38, God begins to respond to Job in some of the most beautiful poetry that you'll ever read in the scripture. He goes through, and, and what God does basically is say, Job, you're accusing me of misrunning the world. Well, let me tell you something. Job, were you there when I hung the stars? Job, were you there when I told the, the, the waves to go this far and no more? Were you there when I carved the mountains? Were you there when, uh, when, when, when I made the, the land? Were you there do you know where the, the, it's random, he says, do you know where the mountain goat has its babies? Do you cause the eagles to soar? Which I liked. And then he goes on, the weird part, he goes, have you considered the majesty of the stork? Which I went, no. <laughs> Not what I thought of when I think of majesty as a stork, I think of babies. But anyways, he, but he goes, have you considered that? Because I, God, have. And in doing so, Job gains a perspective about God. And throughout these illustrations, God tells, tells Job this, Job, you live in a very good and beautiful world. At the same time, that good and beautiful world is not perfect. There are problems with it. It is very wild. It is very dangerous. And so the invitation uh, to Job from God is to simply trust what God is doing. And look at Job's response in 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Basically, here's what Job and us can know through this. I can know I don't understand what's going on. That, God, your ways are different than how I would think. I can't see everything you're doing, God. It looks like God is absent, yet that's just my perspective. And I can't see everything that God does. And what God is doing cannot be stopped. It's always good 
to believe that. In the middle of our crises, what's Job tell us? God is still good. God is still moving. And here's what it means for us. There's a lot of applications that we can go the wrong way. Let's address some of that. It's not God's will that you suffer. A lot of times we'll say this, that, well, it's God, God, God wanted another angel, so this person passed. No. Did God want us to have death in our world? Go back to Genesis 1. No. The fallen world we live in is very chaotic, and sometimes cancer goes. Cancer wins. Pain happens. Does God, is God sitting up there going, ha, 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 good? No. It breaks his heart too. Did God want my dad to die? No. But because of this imperfect world that we're living in now, death is what we deal with. Sickness is what we deal with. But what we learn through Job is the perspective. Suffering is a part of this world. It's part of the disorder in this world that God is redeeming as we go along. God, from the very beginning, is taking chaos and making it into order. It starts in the very beginning of the book. In the beginning, God created, and he spoke into the chaos and said, let there be light. And he brings order from chaos, and you can see this theme running everywhere through Scripture. Order from chaos, order from chaos. Yet there's still some chaos here. So Job is finally coming to the realization that God is good, and though our reality and our crises cloud our, 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 our view of God's goodness, it doesn't mean that God has ever stopped being good. God's plan for history and the world entails a gradual process of creating order from disorder, and this process is still ongoing, and there's disorder that, we, that remains. And what we can know through this is God is working, God is present, and it's going to be good. Maybe not on your time, but it's going to be good. God is still moving. I think of Abraham. He was promised in Genesis 12 that he would be a father of a great nation. So what's this mean? Abraham's going to have a lot of kids. Abraham had two. One of them was the promise. Did Abraham get to see how big Israel was? No. But the promise of God stood. He was going to be a father of a great nation. Moses, come, God comes to Moses and says, you're going to lead my people to the promised land. Moses wanders for 40 years out in the desert. Moses never gets to enter the promised land. Did that stop God from being good? No. Did they enter the promised land? Yes. So sometimes you might not be able to see the end result that God is working, but we can trust this. God is working. On Christmas Eve growing up, uh, my dad used to walk around and he would tell my brothers and my sister this. He'd go, tomorrow, you might want to put tape over your eyeballs that you can see through because when you see what happens, your eyes are going to pop out. And as a nine-year-old, when I took everything literal, I'm like, oh no, this is going to be terrible. All I could think about was those springs, those, those glasses, that dong, 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 okay? And so I didn't know what was happening. I'm like, well, it's going to be good. But every Christmas Eve, what would happen is my dad would lock himself into the garage and, and he'd close the door and he'd say, don't come in here. Whatever you do, don't come in here. And all Christmas Eve, we'd be wandering around. We'd look at the garage and go, what's dad doing? Now, he was probably out there enjoying the silence, right? But he would be out there with a hammer doing this, tapping around. Like, he's 
building something, but I can't see it. And so the doubt starts to creep in our mind. What's he going to do? I don't know. And this ambiguity, right? Does, is it going to be, is, are my eyes going to pop out? I hope not literally, but is, the, is, is he building something for us that's awesome? We couldn't see. We'd go to bed with dad in the garage. And, and then the next morning, it was good. We couldn't see what he was doing, but our eyes nearly popped one year. It was a Nintendo, the very first one. Dad didn't build it, I, I don't think. But there were things that dad was working on and we couldn't see it. Even though we can't see it, God is still working. Even though our crises cloud our judgment, God is still working. Going back to Moses, he stands in front of the burning bush. His brethren are back in, is, uh, back in Egypt. They're slaves. They're going through some hard times. They've been there for 400 years. Their hope is gone. They forgot to believe in God. They've forgotten who God was. Yet God tells Moses this, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. The same can be said in our suffering. God sees us. He hears our prayers. He's concerned over us. The word concerned is the Hebrew word yada, which can be translated, I know what they're going through. Not just like, yeah, I know, but a deep, intimate knowledge. I know what they're going. So when someone says yada, 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 I know, I know, I know. That's a little fun thing you can do in your head. I know what they're going through. And then in verse 8, he says this. So, it's not that just God knows what they're going through. He's like, yeah, hold on, they're over there. I forgot about them. Verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out into a good and spacious land, flowing with milk and honey from the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Prezerites, Hivites, and Jebusites. You know all those people. But what God's saying is, I not only know what you're going through, I'm actually doing something about it. And in this place, in the middle of suffering, you can rest assured that what God is doing is probably going to be too big and too good for you to even acknowledge or comprehend what he's about to do. In the middle of your suffering, as we go through Job, you can always count that God is not absent. He knows what you're doing, knows what you're going through, and he is on the move. The other thing that we can know through this the other principle is that we can know our limits. Look in verse 6 of 42. Verse, uh, now, there's many troubling verses as we go through Job, and we'll, we'll, we'll address them as they come, but this is one that we need to look at pretty good. Uh, this question uh, makes theologians squirm in their seats, okay, or this, this verse. Uh, one of, this verse reads like this. We'll just read it. Therefore, he says, this is Job talking, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Now, just reading this uh, makes you look at let this and go, well, Job was doing something wrong, right? He hates himself and he's sorry. The problem you get here is that Job has nothing to repent for. Job never did anything wrong in the book. All of his venting, he didn't do anything wrong. He never crossed that line. And this will make sense later in the book, but God says this, that Job has actually spoken correctly of me. God says that God never shames Job because of it. 
Uh, he never shames Job for wanting to know why he's suffering or why he's going through this. So to read this verse and think that Job is despising himself and repenting for a, for a sin that he's committed is a bad translation of the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's there. The Hebrew word that's, uh, that your NIV, if you have the NIV, if you have a different translation, it's probably a different word. If you have the New American Standard, it's translated correctly there, so just hold your breath on that one. But the word that's translated for despise looks like this. There you go, if you can see it. And it's pronounced ma'az. Now, it sounds like I'm saying ma, yeah, but it's pronounced ma'az. Careful. Make sure you put that Z in there if you want to. If you don't, great. Uh, ma, something else. So it's pronounced this way, but here's what it actually means. It, it means to retract. It doesn't mean to despise myself. It doesn't mean I hate myself. It means I retract what I have spoken against you. I take it all back because I know better now. The New American Standard says it this way, therefore I retract and I repent. Now the word repent, we often think of, oh, it's because he sinned, therefore he repents. No, no, no. Repent just means to turn around. Okay, so you can repent from something like, I'm walking this way, I repent, I turn around. It can mean just like that too, or it can mean that you're repenting from a sin. It's the idea of turning. So Job is saying, I, I retract what I've said, and I'm no longer going to think that way anymore. Make sense? I retract my accusations against you that you're unjust. I retract my accusations of you that you are mean and you don't care and you don't love me. I retract that. I admit, Job's saying, that I once lived by rumors of you and now I've heard it firsthand. My eyes have seen and my ears have heard. I'm sorry for that. I'm turning from this and I'll never do it again. I'll never live on hearsay. I'll never listen to crumbs or rumors. Now, that's a long way from the word despise, right? He's not saying I despise myself. And then he says this, I sit on dust and ashes, which is an interesting way of talking. I don't know if he's literally sitting on dust and ashes. It's one of those things. But what's Job admit there? In Genesis 1 and 2, God carves the human race from what? Dust. And so Job is saying literally, I am dust. In other words, Job is coming to terms with the truth that we can all come to terms with during our crises. It's this. You're not God. I'm not God. Some of us might be closer to being a God, but you're not God. You never will be God. So what Job is saying is something that you and I can say. We're not God. We're simply dust. And ashes. I have a friend that will pray, and sometimes when she prays, she gets pictures, and she always prefaces it. She'll say, Brad, I got a picture, but remember, I'm dusty. Her name's not dusty. She just says, I'm, I'm, I'm made of dust. So what I'm saying isn't necessarily, f- I'm not God telling you this. I'm human. I'm made of dust and ash. And in coming to terms with that, we can't control what's going on in the world. We can't control anything, really. We can't control what other people do. When we try, what happens? We're exhausted. And when we get exhausted, when we become stressed, when our hearts begin to break, what's our first thing that we do? We try and control things. Why? Because we realize that we're not God and we're trying to control outcomes. Job comes to this conclusion. I'm human 
And I'm okay with my limits. I'm okay not knowing everything. It's in this place where we begin because it's in this place where Job begins to find comfort in the middle of his crises. When we confront our need for control, when we surrender it to a place of trust in a God who is working, in a God whose promises never fail, what we will find is comfort in the middle of whatever crisis comes our way. Because we don't rely on answers anymore. We rely on a God who is moving, a God who is working, a God who understands what we're going through and can see past what we're going through. So this is the challenge of this book, and it's going to be the challenge in the coming weeks as we try to apply this. We will wrestle with our desire to know everything, and we'll come to the conclusion that we can't. Hard things will happen, and in this life, and and (laughs) when you leave this room, hard things will happen to you. And in the middle of them, we walk away going, God is still good, God is still trustworthy, and God still knows what he's doing. Our world and our lives are full of ambiguity. We don't know, we can't see, and oftentimes we feel lost. I told you about that ambiguity time in my life. And one of the times I was talking with my friend Steve, and uh, he's, I've learned a lot from my buddy Steve, and uh, you might think that he's like 40 years older. No, he's actually a year younger than me. And one time we were out, we were down in California still, he took me to coffee, and we're sitting there, and he starts going through, he starts naming everything that's amb- ambiguous in my life, right? He goes, yeah, you don't, you don't know where you're going to go to work tomorrow. Yeah, you don't know where you're going to live. He starts like, yeah, Steve, I know. Stop reminding me, jerk, right? I, this is what I was thinking. And, and then he goes, your life is ambiguous. And then he has me do this weird exercise. He says, open up the, your dictionary on your phone and look up ambiguous, and I do. And I tell him the definition. He goes, that's you. But here's what's not. God. God's goodness. God's promises. God's unending love for you. That's not ambiguous. Though everything may change, that won't. So your life might be ambiguous. For a while I had the definition of ambiguous on my screensaver on my phone because every time I would look at it, I'd go, that's what that is and that's what God is not. And ultimately, that's what I'm not. Why? Because I'm loved by God. We will wrestle with things in our lives. We will struggle with things in our lives. We're going to try some things, and it's going to fail miserably. That's okay. We'll get backed up on stuff. We, uh, We will come to terms with our humanity quite regularly in our lives. And then we will also worship and follow a God who's knowable, capable, trustworthy, and good. Last night when we were putting the boys to sleep, we were, uh, they like to pick the story in their, they have a comic book Bible. It's like illustrated by this famous comic book writer. I don't know who he is, but someone gave it to me and they said, this guy's a good combo illustrator, illustrated Bible. And so I'm reading it and they'll always pick the weird stories. So the other night they picked the story of JL and judges putting the tent peg in the dude's head and it's like illustrated right there. And I'm like, yeah, we're not reading that one. I'd like to sleep and not have bad dreams. And so they'll pick the story, and then they're not looking. I'll find a better one. But last night, they picked the story of Jesus sleeping in the boat. They picked it. And I was like, oh, great, this one's fun. And as we're reading it, they're getting a kick out of the pictures because it shows Jesus completely sawing logs in the back of the boat. Meanwhile, the boat's going through some storms. Do we know the story? 
they push off and the storms come up out of nowhere, like life's problems come up out of nowhere and the disciples start freaking out. They're bailing water left and right, trying to figure out what's going on. They don't know if they're going to die. They don't know where the storm came from. They don't know why Jesus is just sleeping there doing absolutely nothing. They're frantic. They're trying to control the situation. They're bailing, they're tying sails, they're battening down the houses, hatches, but Jesus is napping. And so finally they go wake him up. And they wake him up and the story goes that Jesus kind of wipes the sleep from his eyes and looks at the water and goes, shh, quiet, be still. And then the, the, in the Bible, it's like a picture of perfect glass water. And Jesus is standing there like, why were you so worked up in the first place? Do you know who I am? Do you, know, do you doubt me? Where is your faith? In the middle of the storm, where's your faith? And what we can learn from that is that when we're in the middle of our crises, what we find in Job, that the one who holds the world together, we're resting firmly in his nail-scarred hand. And he says, I got you through this. This is my hope for these next weeks, that we'll come to a place where we can can securely rest in the palm of Jesus' hands, knowing and coming to the same conclusion that Paul does in Romans, that God is still working all of these things for good, And though we don't know how he's going to get there, we don't know when he's going to get there, he's still working. And nothing that happens to you will ever take you out of that grip. So as we study Job, may we rest in the grip of our Savior's hands. When you go through the crises crises that are going to hit you as soon as you walk out the doors or maybe just texted you, the crises that just came up, you are still firmly in God's hand and nothing can remove you from that. Everything is ambiguous, but God's love for you is not. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that though our world is full of unknowns and problems and issues that we have to figure out, you're still there. And it's okay that we have doubts, and we thank you for the grace that we can still have doubts. We thank you that you give us that picture of Thomas, and, he's, and you welcome his doubts, and you say, touch me, try me. In the middle of your doubts, you are present with us. In the middle of our crises, you're with us. And though our situations might be bad, though our situations might be unclear, you are still good. You still hear us. You still see us. And you're still on the move. And nothing will stop you from moving. God, may we rest in that. And Lord, may we come to grips with our reality that you're God and we're dust. And we're not here unless you breathe life into us. And we can't know everything. We'll never know everything. But we know you. We praise you for that. That there's nothing in this life that compares to you. It's in your name we pray.